0: Hi, everyone. We have a quick announcement before the show today. SmartLogic, the custom software shop behind this very podcast, is hiring for a mid-level Rails or Elixir developer. Our team is fully remote and this position is open to applications from anywhere in the United States. You can read the full job description and apply at smartlogic.io slash jobs. Okay, now on to the show.
1: Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by Smart Logic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Alex Housand, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by my co-host, Sundi Mian. Hey Sundy, what's up? Hello there. Unfortunately, our producer Eric Ostrich is out today, so Sundy is going to be our Jack of All Trades co-host and producer. The season is Beam Magic, and we're joined today by special guest Isaac Yonamoto. Welcome, Isaac. Hey guys, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you doing today on this fine Wednesday?
2: I'm doing okay. <laughs> I've just had to deal with a uh, one of our. Maybe hey, I shouldn't say this. <laughs> just been dealing with some tricky stuff at work with connecting up with um, other SaaS's.
1: SaaS's.
2: Could you, are you define SaaS
1: products here?
2: Yeah. yeah, software as a service products. Service. Fun. Yeah. Sometimes the APIs don't quite do what you want them to do. And uh, that can be, that All is the life time. of a developer. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> All the time. And you're like, what's happening? What? What? What's <laughs> not working? No answers either. It's just a black hole sometimes. ugh. That is a good segue though, talking about work. It looks like you got your start in, I will say like more traditional sciences so, how did you find your way into programming?
2: What made you kind of diverge? Yeah, so I, I've been programming for a super long time. I don't know, like, so I, I grew up in the DC area. Y'all are familiar with that, and you know, there's like some TLAs and weird stuff going on. And uh, I went to an element, like an elementary school that I think was like funded by some sort of weird grant, and they were teaching us how to program, like. In first grade, we learned how to type, and as soon as we learned how to type, we learned how to program.
0: I remember learning how to type in first grade, but not how to program. This
2: wasn't an this th- this wasn't an era when when like typing was still considered to be like secretarial work in a women's women's job, which is kind of which is kind of. Oh, I mean, it's kind of the tail end of that. Like it was maybe a few years before AOL came around, so you know th- that transition in the in the DC area hadn't quite happened. So yeah, that's that. So it was a very sort of like ahead ahead of itself, you know. My dad was just like a middle manager in the U.S. government. He also had a part time job in the Navy. So one of his one of his jobs in the Navy, he led a group that developed the first the first fully networked uh, inventory system for the Navy. And so he 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 was like he called himself a technological midget, but he but he was he was good at he liked to say he was good at talking to geeks. And so I think he appreciated that that was like, real. I was super lucky. I just had a bunch of like, at a really young age, people who were kind of pushing me into tech. My neighbor was uh, the NSF uh, uh, project administrator who uh, wound up getting the gravitational wave sensors up and running the LIGO, the LIGO project. And he was insistent to my dad that, he get me a computer. So, um, you know, I was lucky to have all these like early influences kind of pushing me towards this stuff. Um, But then I I decided to become a chemist because I liked to uh, work with my hands, spent, you know, did, did a whole PhD in that, in that field was a Lyft driver for a year and a half after quitting science, which was also a, 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 which is also a pay upgrade. I, I made more money as a Lyft driver than I did as a scientist, <laughs> and uh, yeah. And then I decided that you know, look, i I can program, so why don't I try and figure out? Like, I was in San Francisco, so I was like, why don't I try and figure out the the startup scene and try and get a job? And started by doing some contracting work, helped like debug a uh, prototype computer chip, um, did some theoretical computer science. And then finally got a job as R&D at a startup and used that as an excuse to teach myself Elixir.
0: So that's a really interesting kind of origin story from the perspective of you went all the way to PhD and chemical engineering, or was it just bio, I don't know these words, biochemistry? And I I noticed on your Twitter profile, you said, you're like, you're going to get back to bio one day. So in these two tracks, the the multi-universe of the Isaac world, is there an ideal? Is there a spot you'd like to be in? Is there like maybe a merging of the two that's like peak Isaac?
2: You know, I think that like, we're seeing that biotech has not really sort of embraced the, the, basically the open source concepts that like, you know, information should be free It's still like heavily encumbered encumbered by things like patents. You know, I've always wanted to, having been sort of in sort of the more computer tech side and seen what that's done, I've always wanted to like do that with biology. I tried as a biologist. You know, I've got some crazy stories of, uh, there was a Chinese lab that had just published the genome of some organism and they were like, we're making this open access to everyone. And so we were kind of, we used their, we used their interface and we, we we're skeptical. And so I wrote a, I wrote a Ruby script to scrape their, the genome of this organism from their website, one HTML, HTML page at a time. Uh, and then like, we got it. And then the next day they'd shut down, they'd shut down the, the website and it was very clear that they were just like open sourcing it just to say that they were open sourcing it, right? So that that i mean i've 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 used like computer tech in this, a quasi professional way in in um you know in various exploits over time, running simulations of enzymes and stuff like that and my dad always wanted me to do like uh some sort of combination of biology and 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 programming and I just never really i never really thought that that was like the right right way to go. I still stand by that. Uh, But I think that 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 biology can, like, learn a lot from how we've done things. Drug prices are really expensive. And I think if we had a commitment towards, like, doing things without without it, it can be a much better enterprise for everyone.
1: Yeah. And even more recently with with COVID, right?
2: Yeah, Yeah, They had
1: to force them to be like, can you just make it available so actually more people can get vaccinated?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I'm not sure that Moderna and and uh, and Bi- and Fi- and Biotech were. I think they voluntarily said that they wouldn't make it. I mean, who knows who who's, who told them what? But uh, yeah, I mean, I, so we're seeing like little little bits of this creep creep through. I mean, of course, like when the polio vaccine came out, that was that was not patented, partially because we didn't have a concept of patenting vaccines back then. You know, they were also like, you know, this is this is important, so let's do it.
1: Yeah we want to help people how did elixir catch your eye if you don't mind me asking i mean it's a it's it's relatively niche and i've said that probably on like every single podcast episode so i'm really sorry to everybody listening that i'm saying it again but i i still think it's true it's pretty niche how did you find it what made you interested in it
2: that's a good question i'm actually kind of surprised that that i wound up on it myself basically like You know, I've I've programmed in everything from C to Ruby to Python to Perl, you know, in dribbles over the course of many many years. Um, Probably of all those, Ruby was the one that I liked the best. It did come to a head around 2000 and I want to say nine or ten, maybe uh, maybe a little bit later, when it basically became really difficult to install Ruby. (laughs) <laughs> like you just couldn't like you couldn't do it right like maybe it was a little bit later 12 2012 or 2013 you just, like you couldn't pull the correct ruby package and there was a ruby 1.8 2.1 debacle and i mean like you know it just was no longer easy and i kind of got sick and tired of it uh and then uh i learned julia which is uh which which really excited me because um i was you know had a fairly strong math background and was interested in doing interesting math things. It, it was, it got me through two contracting jobs that were very like numerical in nature. <laughs> they were shocked because they, there was like a 10,000 fold speed up and we could deploy our our code to supercomputers, which, you know, was much more challenging for the systems that they were re- writing in, uh, which is Mathematica, And also like our code looked exactly like what he had written in the book. So that was like, it, it, it worked out really well. Um, but it's hard to get, it was, it was back then it was really hard to get Julia jobs. And so I was kind of, I kind of had dipped my toe in the functional programming sphere. And I, I guess I had just was Google searching one day, like, what can I learn next? And, you know, it was suggested somehow like Elixir got suggested to me by the Oracle, the Google Oracle or something like that. And, uh, you know, it it looked like Ruby. Uh, and it was functional, so I guess that 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 was sort of the what what got me into it. Um, and I mean, really, it's it's been the programming language that I have ha- found the most joy in, like even more than Ruby. Ruby was known to be the programming language that is joyful. And like I find that Elixir is even more so. You know, It's not perfect, but I've run across both in my code and other people's codes, extremely frustrating patterns that sometimes happen. <laughs> like I would say at the 90% level, it's by far the best programming language experience that I've ever had. And I'm unlikely to move off of it.
0: What would you say your aha moment was with Elixir? Cuz I know Alex and I have said, you know, plenty of times in the past that there was like a moment where it clicked for us and, you know, you say that you you find the most joy in it. Did you have one? Is there a particular feature of Elixir that you really enjoy?
2: I don't I can't remember any specific aha moment that got to me. I mean, there are just have been so many and they've, they they none of them have been really like earth shattering. It's like, oh, and I can do this too? Yeah, of course I can do this too, right? The, those sorts of mo- moments have just like piled up. The discovery that, that somebody else had built something in the, Elixir, in the Elixir standard library, in fact, is, so this goes back to our uh, testing um, which you guys did last week how how elixir has support for asynchronous testing and that's that's like really fascinating to me and like i I design whenever I start a project I design it from the ground up to be to be uh, to have hundred percent asynchronous tests it might not necessarily be the case for something where you're building you know, a, a web service or something like that before my libraries I always do I always do hundred percent asynchronous because that's That's important to me because it guarantees that other people, when they try to use your code, you're going to have something robust and something that will work.
1: Yeah. I think in the, I think in the previous episode, we, well, it was about testing, but we talked about, you know, was there, was there a moment where a lack of tests kind of bit you and made you really find your appreciation? for testing your code. And did you have a moment like that? Or was this something that was kind of instilled within you early on?
2: I think I have an appreciation for Elixir, the Elixir and the Elixir ecosystem because because I've become better at testing. When I started off, I was not very good at testing at all. And I didn't have a good concept of, you know, what sorts of tests you should write, when you should do TDD, when you it's okay to not do TDD. If it, unless you, I mean, like I, I like TDD, but I don't always do it. So I, I, I think I'm in, in between the two previous guests you had. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that there's any one thing in particular. <laughs> Again, it's just it's just a holistically. I, I feel like it, it's made me a better programmer, and that's that's I have a lot of appreciation for that.
1: I would 100% agree with that. I think my first Elixir job, which was my my job previous to this, uh, or I guess two previous to this made me a much better programmer and was also the first job that I'd really had where there was a very strong emphasis put on testing. I'd either been in startup world where the pace you're moving at is just so fast, it's like, get it out the door, get it out the door, get that thing also out the door. And so everything is just higgledy piggledy. Or my first job was at some, was at, you know, a pretty, like a 20 year old company with a pretty, pretty old legacy code base with little if no tests, right? And it's it's hard to then at that point prioritize going backwards and saying, oh, we need to t- write tests for this legacy code. And I think that Elixir has made me enjoy it. Yeah. I like the way you put that. It's made you a better programmer.
0: Yeah. I definitely feel the same way about that too. Like I definitely like TD. TD I can't speak. I like <laughs> TDD a lot, but I also don't always do it, time factor, but I always find that when I don't do it, it took me longer to write the thing than it would have if I had wrote a failing test first.
2: Yeah, it has a way of focusing you and getting you to write the minimum amount of code you need and then and then you're like, oh, I'm done? <laughs> you know, I'm a person who will oft, not always, but will often like overthink things and just Just TDD is like a great way to just put blinders on yourself. And, you know, many times makes you productive because you don't obsess over all of the nitty gritty, infinite possibilities. And it also like, sometimes we'll say, you know what, I know this is a possibility. I'm going to wait for a customer to complain about it. Write yourself a little comment. This could break. Hey. (laughs) And then, and then, you know, maybe that, that like weird shape in the database will never occur and and when it does, you push a patch and it's going to be okay,, you know?
0: yeah, absolutely. Switching gears real quick, wanna do a little spotlight on you you do you do a lot of Zig and Ziggler. can you tell us what that is, what it's about? the elevator pitch
2: yeah, so um, I think it was about two years ago I discovered you know so elixir is a high level programming language, and so there're just some things you really don't want to do and i can't remember exactly what i w- wanted to do uh as a nif so nifs are uh, in the beam virtual machine are are ways to interface with native code so basically what does it stand for a natively invoked function i i'm i'm guessing <laughs> i don't i don't even remember native interface function maybe Ooh. uh it, the the broader CS term that people typically use for it is FFI, Foreign Function Interface. So uh, it lets you write C code and um, compile the C code, and then and then your Elixir code or Erlang code will execute that that C code and then come back and then give the result back to whatever code was was triggering that function. And I remember looking at the NIF specification that Erlang provides, and the docs, and just kind of like eyes glazing over. It's like, okay, hey, this is not something I'm going to do. So previously, I had done this in Julia. I'll, I'll say it's com- considerably easier in Julia than it is in in, in uh, the Beam and and um, Erlang and Elixir. At some point, I don't. I must have learned about Zig. Which is also a low-level programming language that seeks to be a replacement for C. Kind of in the community, it's it's often said that Rust is a replacement for C and ZIG is a replacement for C. It's designed to address a lot of core problems in C. So you can do things, you can't do things unsafely. So for example, integer overflow is a problem in C. So if you go if you have an 8-bit integer and you go past 256, that you're going to have problems. And so that's one example of something that Zig will prevent you from doing or going over the end of an array. So if you, if you have like an array of 10 items and then you index into, into 10, it'll yell at you. It'll crash the program. And so you don't do that. As I started exploring Zig, what I noticed was that there's actually quite a bit of similarities between Zig and Elixir. So the way I think of programming Elixir is you have to remember that there are two, two different modes that Elixir is running in. So there's the code that exists in your DEF and DEFP blocks, and that's code that's running at runtime. And everything outside of DEF and DEFP is effectively a scripting language that you're using to build your program. So there's two worlds of Elixir. There's the compile time world, which is a scripting language that is used to assemble a a beam, a beam, fully running Beam program. And then there's the actual program itself, which is at runtime.
0: I've always kind of thought about the difference there being like the stuff in the EX files and stuff in the EXS files. Are you saying it's separated a little more on the nitty gritty side? Is there a little more spe- specificity there? Okay.
2: So in an EX file, so Ignoring the EX files, which I think are, I mean, they're a little bit of a, but even in, inside of an EXS file, it's a little bit, it's a little bit more complicated in my mind. I don't fully, I don't actually completely understand how the, how the interpreter works. <laughs> Just for the compi- co- compiler, I think of, so even out, everything outside of def, def module and inside of a def module. And then everything that is outside of the defp and defs is a script that's used to assemble. You can assign variables inside the body of a, of a def module, right? And then what happens to that variable? It just disappears after, you know, it doesn't exist after, after your, your asset has been compiled. So in that sense, it's a scripting language. You can write, like, you can do crazy things. You can load a file, you know, JSON parse it, and, and, then, and then, you know, find some field in, in, in the JSON and then use that to set something at compile time, right? So, and it took me a while to figure that out. I didn't, I didn't fully appreciate that until maybe about a year, a year and a half into using Elixir. Elixir has comp time, this compile time or comp time code and there's runtime code. And Zig also has code that you run at compile time and code that you run at runtime. And you kind of have to train yourself to like see the difference between the two because like Elixir, it's kind of, you know, can be a little bit murky as to what's running when. But it's extremely powerful. The one thing that Zig, Zig doesn't have that Elixir has is macros. But it turns out you, you can do a lot of very powerful things without macros as long as you have compile time. Um, Elixir, which has mix.exs, there's a build.zig, which is a, which is a code file that you use that provides instructions to the compiler on how to build your project. And I think that both of those concepts... Are really powerful and, and modern, so in the old days of C you would use make you and now people are using cmake and 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 it gets really complicated and sometimes sometimes C files are quite frankly inscrutable like you know you you people have like people have these macros that are designed to inject code that's that's weird and depending on if you're using windows or, or Linux. Like the entire function header can change, and it can get really can get really messy. None of that in it. It's very clean because everything is sort of in one language that's easy to understand just just as just as as it is like so everything's in one language, your build is in one language here, and your uh, and your compilation units are in the same language.
1: What's it like to write but then debug a NIF? like how do you go about doing that? I guess.
2: Yeah, it's it's hard. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't have a good answer for, for that except write tests. And I, I mean, I, I, uh, the approach that I take when I'm d- at least doing all of my Ziggler stuff is I write just Elixir tests. And, and to make that easy, I've made... So Zig also has tests. You can write these tests in line. Uh, you write these little test blocks and then it executes the code only when you're testing. What I've done is I've made those integrated into much like how we have doc tests in in Elixir. If you're writing your inline Zig code in Zigler, and it sees this test block, it will take that and you can you can write in your test in your Elixir test file. You know you might have doc test some module. You can do zig test that a different a module that contains your Zig code. It'll find all of the test. It'll find all the test blocks and then turn those into a set of tests that you run that that are marshaled by XUnit, and so you have full seamless integration between your tests that are that are of Zig code and your tests that are of Elixir code. And so, as sort of a guiding philosophy for Zig Ziggler, one of the things that I've wanted to do was to provide like a really tight integration surface between the two languages, so between the uh, between Elixir specifically and 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 Zig. So a good example of that is if you, if you return an error from a function inside of ZIG, ZIG has something called an uh, error return trace. So it's, it's kind of like throwing an exception, but um, there are some very key differences that exist because ZIG is a low-level language. But in, in debug mode, you can ge- it generates a trace of, of which, funct- which function was the first function that, that, that said, I've got an error, right? And what I've done is I've integrated that with Elixir so that when that error exits the NIF and comes back into Beamland, it can find that stack trace and it will append the Zig stack trace on top of the Elixir stack trace. So when you see your error come out in your Elixir stack trace, it, it shows you all of the elixir functions that you're calling and then what zig functions you're calling and then where where that error came from
0: this is probably just because i've been doing a lot of ecto stuff recently but in my head this sounds like when you join attributes together and you're like seeing data attributed to one model and then you've just attached it to another one that's like vaguely related to and then you get to see all the information that's really cool
2: yes yeah, so this is a new feature so um to sort of, <laughs> I, I guess this is a little bit out of order, but uh, so Zig was, and Ziggler were on version point, 0.7, and um, Zig just released 0.8, and so I'm currently in the process of bumping Zigler to 0.8, and so the merged, the merged error return and stack traces is something that's going to happen uh, with the next release.
0: So if you had to break it down into like, like a one sentence for each thing, Zig builds into Ziggler... In, in what kind of way? Like, would you describe, you, you describe Zig as a low level language. How would you describe Ziggler?
2: Yeah, so Ziggler is a bridge between Elixir and, and Zig, which makes it super easy to build NIFs. And there are a few things that I really care about. So one, I also, one of the things that I care about is um, I want to make code review easy. So if you have something where you're, you have not too much Zig code, right? so you're not necessarily pulling in outside libraries you just have a little bit of stuff that needs to be high performance it's all in the same repo so what you do is you write your zig code inside of a sigil z z block inside of your module right then that turns into that turns in that creates all the machinery that correctly assembles the nif and then compiles it into your program so your your Elixir module has Zig code sitting inside of it, inside of a Sigil Z block, a code inside of a code block. You can have it be a part of a single code review process without having to say pull a Zig library or Rustler. I think uses Cargo, so you're pulling from the Rust repo. So if some change gets made over there, you know you have to you have to like go to a se- a separate like repository manager and then okay let's look over this code. I wanted to like make it as simple as possible. That seamlessness is nice. Yes, exactly. So seamlessness was a was an, was a was a high priority for what I what, uh, what I was doing with Ziggler.
1: I think this sounds very cool, and I would say that I'm still kind of like wide eyed, and I do, I don't really understand it, but I now would like to actually know more about it. So maybe find me poking around in the docs sometime. Um, I saw on your Twitter that you wrote your own disassembler. Is that true?
2: Yeah. So I, I think the thing is that like when you, <laughs> once you start like peeking at, at the, at the, um at how deep the rabbit hole goes <laughs> with, with the beam virtual machine, there's like, you, 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 you find other things that, that are interesting and then, and then you can keep going. Right. So, all right. I, I've got two pet projects that I want to sort of um, merge. well, w- w- it, it, there's sort of a domino effect. So one led to the other, to the other. So Zig is capable of compile. Oh, one, one thing that is amazing about Zig is that it's really easy to cross compile with Zig. So this is a major problem with low level programming languages. If I'm on a Linux machine and I want to give you an ex- executable that runs on your, on, and you're on a Mac, how am I going to do that? And if it's a scripting language or a, or or like sort of a high level VM language like Java or Elixir, usually I can just send you the code and then it will run. Um, But if it's something that needs to be compiled to a single program, not necessarily so much. Go kind of has this down, but there are even places where you can't do this so cleanly in Go. And for sure, it's like it's a nightmare with C. Zig solves this quite easily, so you can you can cross compile Zig between architectures and between operating systems with no problems. Well, I mean, for the ones that are well-supported. And moreover, um, you can use it to compile C. Quite a few people have found use of Zig as a drop-in cross-compiler for for C programs. And so Hugo, which is a static site generator for, for, which in Go (laughs) is one of the best ways to cross-compile it is using Zig. (laughs) So because it requires some amount of C and that amount of C cannot easily be cross compiled, even though it's in Go. So uh, I can't remember how I was, how I was getting into this.
0: <laughs> All good. Maybe while we're, we're, while we're paused there, actually, you just made me think of something. You've had a lot of experience with different languages. And I feel like you, you mentioned earlier that it was harder to write um, NIFs in elixir than it was in julia was that something you said and i'm curious is there anything missing from the beam that you that would have made it easier or just in general is there anything that you feel is like severely missing from the beam
2: no so the reason why the reason why it's easier to call c from julia is one because julia cares highly about high performance c because you know they are working with scientific computing where every you know, clock cycle counts, and the priority for Elixir and the Beam is different. So we care about having robust and high uptime systems, and as a result, everything has to be interruptible. Um, and and so it's important for the the Beam to be able to run some code and yank it and say, hey, it's you, you you've had your share. Let's let's give let's give let's give some other task like some its fair share of time. And so to in order to accommodate that, there are a lot of things that the beam has to kind of put in the way of of executing low level code. So when you're writing a NIF, the other major difficulty for the beam is that we have a uh, dynamic type system right so we have boxed types so every every value that you have in elixir or or erlang is surrounded like low level inside the vm it's surrounded by it's got a pointer and you know some meta- metadata that says hey this is like this is a this is an atom or this is a this is a binary or this is a list or whatever right and that has to be unboxed on the other side when you, when you jump into Sea, into SeaLand. And Julia just has some special ways of dealing with that that they've, that they've addressed. But what I, what I do with Zig with Ziggler is I read the function header that you pr- provide to Ziggler saying, I want this function to be mounted into my module. It reads that. It, can, it figures out what the types are and then does all that unboxing for you. So you don't have to write that code. And then also as as you know as a as a little gift, it'll also type spec it correctly. <laughs> so if you say I want an uh, unsigned eight-bit integer, it will the type spec will say zero to two fifty-five are the are the are the, are the correct values. So maybe dialyzer can catch you if you make a mistake.
0: You have gotten into the age old question. Types or no types for Elixir? It's a it's a fun, fun debate. We have it every other episode.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So I guess, I guess for me, part of Ziggler was, Hey, let's, let's find all of the hard parts where it's easy to make mistakes, uh, building a NIF. And, you know, so where Julia has like a macro called C-call that will, that will kind of smooth over all the edges for you. Do something similar in, in Elixir where, where, all of the hard parts are kind of just done automatically because you do not want to make those mistakes, and it will do the right thing. If you if you pass, you know, three hundred and seventy five to something that can only go to two fifty five, it'll say argument error. That's I think I think those those things are those things are kind of important to kind of handle magically if you will.
1: You, you said pointer a minute ago, and I just had this like kind of scary flashback to one of my college. Computer science classes, learning about pointers in C, and I was just like, "Oh no, I'm back! No, take me away!" We I don't can I take still, you away, I, Alex. I still like I rem- I know and I remember, but I, I do remember being truly just like this is going over my head right now, and I wasn't ready. Maybe
2: it's time to revisit it. Yeah, it's it's some low level stuff, but you know, it's not. I think if you get yourself into a mindset where, like, I'm ready and genuinely curious about how all this stuff works under the hood, you'll be you'll you'll be ready to learn pointers. But you know, I I think it's perfectly fine to not not learn that in the beginning.
1: Oh, thank you. I also think there's something to uh, like going back to you learning how to type in first grade. There's something to when you learn something and who is teaching it to you um, that can be the really big difference in your overall experience.
2: Definitely. I, I had a fantastic CS teacher in high school who, who who taught me pointers very, very effectively. Um, <laughs> and I actually used one of our homework problems as, as one of my interview questions. So. <laughs> wow.
1: Well, shout out to that That's teacher. Man. That's incredible. Um, Isaac,
0: you, you did just briefly mention magic. Curious what your thoughts are on magic in the programming space in general, but maybe more related to the Elixir side of things and and what you've experienced having worked with a bunch of different languages. Like what is your opinion of magic and programming?
2: Yeah, so like this is this is one of those things where I'm probably gonna get myself in trouble. <laughs> you know, I, I have kind of a I have a love-hate relationship with magic. It seems like all of the libraries that I write have some splash of magic associated with them. Um so Ziggler, obviously there's a lot of magic. You know, you take this like quote, like this string in the middle of your module and you turn it into something that, that, that becomes a NIF. That's, that's pretty crazy, right? And so there's a lot of macros and there's a lot of magic going on there. I think, I think I like magic when one, it's gotta be predictable. So if you do something, it's gotta make sense. It's gotta, you, you have to be able to like look at it and just say, oh, I have an idea of how that works. I remember when I was learning how to do databases in Ruby with Active Record, it would pluralize your tables for you. And that drove me up the wall. And I could never learn Rails because there was a lot of magic in Rails. Um, And I was doing, I was doing most of my Ruby web stuff in Sinatra, which is a lot like Plug so you know it took me a long time to actually figure out phoenix i started with plug and wrote a lot of stuff in plug and just never touched phoenix until i had and i was like okay fine i gotta do some live view and to make an admin co- console for this thing so i learned i learned myself some live view <laughs> still like i mean and there's still stuff that drives me the wall. like i i don't i don't understand phoenix rats um and I've kind of been dragged kicking and screaming into that. And it's fine. It's a little bit frustrating because sometimes it, it's easy to wind up creating like compiler, compile loops where where I've, I've seen some extremely large and long loops. And often there's a Phoenix route involved in some brownfield projects that I'm working on.
0: Mix PHX routes, just the command, saves my life so much when I'm just not sure what's happening. If I don't know what, like where to start at all. I'll go to the router or if I don't know what I'm looking at, I'll do mix PHX routes and then I can see it all in front of me and I'm like, "Okay, okay. I have a starting point now."
2: <laughs> exactly. I mean, I actually did not learn to use mixed PHX routes until like a few months ago even. <laughs> and then and then I was like, "Okay, okay, okay, fine. All this router magic is worth it because we get this one command that makes my life easier." But I still I still I still have like you know, I still have reservations, but i I get it. I get why it's there right um and, but the way that it does stuff is sometimes a little bit confusing. I'm gonna get myself into trouble here, but uh, I don't love oh, I don't remember what it's called there's a there's a there's a there's a um factory library that we use that i don't love it there's a there's a little bit too much magic, especially when you start rewriting function names. That's i think the place where where and so so these days I've kind of started making small changes here and there in code bases where 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 at least uh if if some sort of macro creates a function, I'll leave some sort of breadcrumb in your import statement or in your use statement, there's some atom that like draws your eyes draws your eye to it and says, okay, when I search for this function that doesn't exist that whose definition does not explicitly exist in the module, here's here here's where it came from and then you can chase you can go and chase it through through that macro import at uh only is has become like i've started sprinkling that everywhere and i've started to like optimize for things like uh uh being able to search with global search and just little things like that have 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 um become a priority at, because because elixir does give you a lot a lot of like space to use magic for very like dangerous and or frustrating things. But on the other hand, when it's something like, you know, you're, you're using this magic to make things really safe and to make sure that errors don't happen, or to make something really painful, really convenient, you know, I think it's, I think it's worth it. And I'm glad that that magic exists. I think we can wind up in danger sometimes where we try to dry a little too soon. Uh, and especially if we start using macros, macros to start drying. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm not super into like using macros for, for drying anymore. I, I was in the past, but not anymore.
1: I have in my head right now. Um, I don't know like the particular quote, but I'm just thinking about magic and like wizardry and warlocks and witches and how like uh, anything powerful can be either good or bad. It just depends on who is kind of wielding the power, right? So I think w- what you just said was was very poignant. Like you can, you can use magic to do really cool things, to do really great things that are also very understandable and clear and concise, or you could do some funkiness and then you end up with a very confusing code base that's hard for people to walk through, hard for people to learn, makes code reviews harder. So it's just all in how you use the power that you have.
0: The quote isn't with great power comes great responsibility, is it?
1: <laughs> well, that's from Spider-Man. Um I'm I think I'm yeah, I'm, I'm more done, specifically I'm thinking I'm more specifically thinking of like, are you gonna be a Dumbledore or are you gonna be a Voldemort? options.
2: maybe this dates me, but like the the reference that I'm thinking of is Disney's Fantasia with uh, I with, love uh Fantasia with um mickey and the and the um and the brooms that he keeps that he keeps like yeah. conjuring he keeps spawning, he spawns all these brooms, and all the brooms are like getting out of control. that's when he think. ends up
1: with the giant broom
2: It's
1: like the mama broom he's really the mom broom is really mad that he's been abusing all the baby brooms. Oh, <laughs> great. It's a great yeah. movie. It's also very strange, but I thoroughly enjoy it. Also,
2: there's something to the idea of like macros, like cloning, cloning code, and like having little cr- codelets that go do <laughs> these little things. that I think is like apt, and like you know, you got to be careful because if you overuse this, you use it in a frivolous way, you might, you might, you might get yourself in some trouble. Yeah, just like Mickey Mouse. Well,
1: Isaac, do you have any final plugs or asks for the audience? Maybe social media. Um, where to find information on your libraries things like that?
2: Yeah, so um you can find Ziggler on hex.pm. There's going to be an upcoming version uh soon, maybe in a, hopefully sooner than I keep saying that and then I keep winding up to have to do like things for work. Um so that, you know, that's life, right? Uh um soon. <laughs> um there are actually two projects that I'm kind of working on that are uh, that I would like to try. So I most of my projects up heretofore have been like fairly solo. And I've been good about like keeping them and keep keep keeping working on them, which I know it can be tricky. I, I just refreshed uh, one project that I that uses magic, uh, that I use for work, uh, which is a JSON schema parser. And I had, that I had started five years ago and never published to Hex. And finally, it was like, okay, it's time. And I published it, published it and it's, I like it now because um, I'm happy with it. But, uh, but the projects that I'm looking for help on, and I think that other people might be interested in in, in stuff like this, one of them is called Keroscuro. The idea is to... So this has to do with disassembly. Um, as you were talking about as you were asking about before, um, I kind of got into Zig disassembly or excuse me, beam disassembly, and am interested in writing a Zig interpreter for it that can be run on the browser. And if you think about that, there's some interesting things about testing, like maybe you could deploy some elixir code on the front on the front end and then also have fully integrated tests in your uh, in your code base, which I think would be really cool. But it's like very hypothetical. I don't know if that's going to be like useful to anyone, but you know it's interesting, and I know that some people are interested in both like Elixir on the front end and might be interested in some neat compiling stuff um and the other thing that I'm working on is a static type checker for elixir. So I know we were talking about types very briefly earlier. I think that we can do a little bit better than dialyzer, and so I have some opinionated opinions about typing and and how we could we could do better in Elixir. Um, and so I am currently, as my third in the stack project, working uh, working on um, working on type analysis in Elixir. And I have an idea of how to use the disassembled uh, uh, beam code and run some fairly nice type analysis on those and help you help you write better programs
1: here we are again yet at the end
2: talking about types (laughs) (laughs) it'll never end it'll never end it'll never die no it'll never die but yeah so the two projects there are called mavis which is the type engine uh i don't know if you guys get that pun but uh i i learned how to type from mavis beacon the other one is called Selectrix, which is that type analysis engine. Also, also a pun.
1: <laughs> Both of those sound fantastic. Um, and definitely something that I would be interested in. So I'll keep my eyes out for the the third on the rung. I get it. Life gets in the way sometimes. And by some of the time, I mean, almost all of the time. Yeah. And I
2: just moved across, halfway across the continent, So that's, that's been, that's been a huge time suck. Yeah.
1: Well, Isaac, um, I wish you luck unpacking. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, also, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really great to have you on and get to talk with you. And that's it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Elixir Wizards is a Smart Logic production. Today's hosts include myself, Alex Hausend, and my co-host slash producer for today, Sunday Mien. We get production and promotion assistance from Michelle McFadden and Ashley Stotts here at Smart Logic. We. We build custom web and mobile software. We're always looking to take on new projects. We work in Elixir, Rails, and React, Kubernetes, and React Native. If you need a piece of custom software built, hit us up. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Follow at SmartLogic on Twitter for news and episode announcements. You can also join us on the Elixir Wizards Discord. Just head on over to the podcast page to find the link. And don't forget to join us again next week for more on theme magic.